for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will hover over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to smite you. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 19, Fellow Passengers on Passover, the Political Power of the Paschal Lamb. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. One of my areas of interest is Passover seders that took place throughout American history, and many have been assembled by David Geffen in his volume, The American Haggadah. A photo that caught my interest is of a seder that took place in 1919 on a train. What it shows, in the words of one article I read, is, quote, a Pullman car on a siding in the railroad yards of Detroit, Michigan. Soldiers returning from Europe were on their way to Camp Grant near Chicago to be discharged, when it became clear that they could not get to Illinois in time for the beginning of Pesach. The Jewish Welfare Board arranged a Seder for them on the train route and obtained a rabbi to officiate in the dining car for what may have been the first and last train Seder in history, end quote. This is interesting, and it is also apt for the purpose of the Passover Seder, rightly understood, is to teach us that we are akin to fellow travelers on a train, joined together for the journey through Jewish history. And it is this learning process, this coming together of Israelites, that lies at the heart of the foundational sacrificial offering of the Jewish faith. The ritual of what is in Hebrew called Korban Pesach, or Paschal Offering, was central to the Jewish year when the Temple stood drawing multitudes to Jerusalem from around the land of Israel and the Diaspora. Today, its political and spiritual significance is largely, to my mind, misunderstood. Indeed, at times, profoundly so. O Paschal Lamb, how do we misunderstand thee? Let me count the ways. First, we must understand what is metaphysically taking place through this ritual. God commands the Israelites to take a lamb, and on the 14th of the month of Nisan, slaughter it, and place its blood upon their doorposts. Exodus 12, 7. And they shall take of the blood and put it on the two side posts and on the lintel, upon the houses wherein they shall eat it. That evening, as they partake of the lamb within their homes, every Egyptian domicile will be struck, while they will remain safe. And then in the morning, they will depart the land of Egypt forever. As most understand it, the function of the blood on the door is to serve as a sign for Israelite homes so that God distinguishes between Egyptian and Hebrew locations and passes over the latter. And this, in my own understanding, is at least partially incorrect. God has just brought about nine other plagues wherein he had no difficulty distinguishing between Hebrew home and Egyptian domicile. The blood, rightly understood, plays another role entirely, and the clue is the other ingredient added by Moses, verse 22. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel on the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Why hyssop? Hyssop, as we will see later in Leviticus, is utilized in purification rituals. The Israelites in pagan Egypt need to ritually cleanse their homes in order to allow God to dwell therein that evening. In Jerusalem, The blood of offerings is placed on the altar of the temple, the dwelling place of the divine. But here, every Israelite home will be turned into a tiny temple, every Hebrew home, a home of God. But why, ladies and gentlemen, does the divine demand 
to dwell in these Hebrew homes on this evening when death dominates outside. Here we arrive at another misunderstanding. The word Pesach is usually translated Passover. The assumption is that God is skipping over Israelite locations. But rightly understood, the word, I think, refers to God hovering over Israelite homes, shielding them, protecting Israel from the plague. A good translation for Pesach might be hover over, or, as I often joke, Pesach should not be translated as Passover, it should be translated as hangover. Not because of the four cups of wine that we drink at the Seder today, but because hovering over a home at its doorway is precisely what the divine is doing. Here is verse 23 with my own twist on the translation. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will hover over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to smite you. The verse describes a destroyer, a mashchit. God seeks to simultaneously unleash the destroyer and then to dwell within the Israelite homes to protect them from that very same plague. So that this moment of salvation is remembered as one of covenantal togetherness with God. This brings us to our final misunderstanding. Today we use the word Passover or Pesach to refer to the seven-day biblical festival of freedom. This is popular parlance. In the Bible, however, that holiday is known as Chag HaMatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we shall discuss in tomorrow's talk. For the Bible, the word Pesach commemorates the afternoon and evening before the Israelites earned their freedom, the moment when the lamb was consumed and Israel saved from death. And if the offering is intended to be brought forever in the future, as it was in Jerusalem, it is because this moment before liberty is meant to be remembered. Thus Moses commands in verse 25. And it shall come to pass when ye come into the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Pesach. For he hovered over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. Why must Israel observe the Paschal ritual before they are free in order to deserve freedom? And what lesson will this lamb teach Israel every year in their own land after they are free? What is unique about this particular offering? Here we turn to one of the wisest books in the history of Western civilization, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. One may be surprised that Tocqueville can teach us about the Paschal offering. But ladies and gentlemen, Tocqueville can teach us about everything. Tocqueville describes how in visiting the United States in the 1830s, he was struck by what he calls associations, how when something was needed to be accomplished, Americans would group together and achieve it by themselves. Quote, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which they all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general, and very particular, immense and very small. And he adds, everywhere that at the head of a new undertaking, you see the government in France and a great lord in England, count on it that you will perceive an association in the United States, end quote. This art of association is what Tocqueville calls the apprenticeship of liberty, which is essential to the formation of a free people. 
In a free society, Tocqueville writes, quote, all citizens are independent and weak. They can do almost nothing by themselves, and none of them can oblige those like themselves to lend them their cooperation. They therefore all fall into impotence if they do not learn to aid each other freely, end quote. The Paschal offering itself is set up in a way that slaves learn this art of association. For unlike most sacrifices, his ritual is one that cannot be accomplished by an individual. Let us look at its laws. First, verse 9. Eat it not raw nor cook with water, but roasted with fire, its head with its legs and innards thereof, and ye shall let nothing remain of it by morning. And then Moses adds in verse 46, In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth the flesh outside, and no bone shall you break thereof. So unlike a standard offering, which is eaten, as we will see in Leviticus, over the period of a day and a night, this must be consumed entirely in several hours. Unlike a standard offering, here not a single bone can be broken. This means that it has to be eaten slowly. And yet we are also informed that it must be entirely consumed if even a bit of meat is left over, a prohibition is violated. This means that a group must be formed in every home in order to eat the lamb together. To consume a complete lamb on one's own is very difficult. The Torah is setting up an obligation that is impossible to accomplish as an individual. One must seek out others to achieve it. Thus, verse 4, If the household be too little for a lamb, then he and his neighbor next to his house shall take one according to the number of the souls. According to every man's eating, ye shall make your count for the lamb. Thus do two Israelite households come together in one unit to mark the Pesach offering. Through this, a slave who once may have thought solely of his survival begins to bond with another Israelite, and thus a people is born. In his book, Civility, Yale Law Professor Stephen Carter notes that in the 19th century, everyone traveled by train. Whether it was first, second, or third class, everyone traveled together, and the passengers were forced to sacrifice a bit for each other in order to make the ride more bearable. As he writes, quote, they purchased guides to proper behavior, like a book by Isaac Peebles, Politeness on Railroads, and followed its rules, such as whispering, loud talking, immoderate laughing and singing should not be indulged by any passenger, end quote. But now, Carter writes with dismay, everyone travels by car. Quote, we travel both long and short distances surrounded by metal and glass and the illusion that we are traveling alone. The illusion has seeped into every crevice of our public and private lives, persuading us that sacrifices are no longer necessary. End quote. Carter complains that we no longer see each other as what he calls fellow passengers. The Paschal Lamb is designed to turn individual slaves into fellow passengers, fellow travelers, fellow members of the people of Israel. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, in his own explanation of this offering, makes the Tocquevelian point, and here I will cite from him select sentences. Quote, Only free and proud people think of others and share with others. The birth of the Chesed community, of a nation within which people unite, give things away, care for each other, share what they possess, is symbolized by the Paschal Sacrifice. God did not need the Paschal Lamb. He had no interest in the sacrifice. He simply wanted the people, slaves who had just come out of the house of bondage, to emerge from their isolation and insane self-centeredness into the chesed community. And Rabbi Soloveitchik cites the verse, If the household is too little for a lamb, 
Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. And then he adds, A new fellowship was formed around the Paschal Lamb. A new community sprang into existence. Being together, living with each other, sharing something many possess in common, was made possible by the ceremonial of the Paschal Lamb. End quote. Thus, the Paschal offering, both in Egypt and later in Jerusalem, marks covenantal togetherness. And so, it must symbolize for us. I recently discovered an article by Natan Sharansky's daughter, Rachel, in which she describes her family's private festival of freedom on the anniversary of her father's release from Soviet prison. When every year, her father tells the story of his bondage, of the God he found in the cell through reading the Psalms, and of the fellowship with the Jewish people that he profoundly felt. She writes, quote, Every year on this day, my family gathers for a private seder of sorts. My father wears the kippah a fellow inmate made for him. He pulls out the little Psalms book that was his companion in prison. And like the children on Pesach, we ask questions to celebrate the Exodus. When we were younger, my sister and I mostly wanted to understand what prison was and were there animals there, perchance. But as we grew and matured, our questions expanded with us. How did you find the strength to go on, Ima and Abba? And how did you survive the shock of normal life? once restored. Rachel Sharansky ends her remarks by explaining how her yearly reliving of those moments as a child and her reenacting them now with her children have impacted her every experience of the freedom she enjoys in Israel today and her feeling of bondedness with the entire Jewish people. She writes that, quote, I wouldn't be here today if you, the Jews of the world, wouldn't have opened your hearts and your homes and your purses. And she adds, I want you to know that I remember and that I am grateful. I want you to know that when I saw my parents playing with their grandchildren near Lefortovo prison several years ago, it was your victory that made me almost dance with joy. 35 years earlier, my father's KGB investigator told him that we don't let heroes leave Lefortovo alive. You, the Jewish people, proved him wrong. Your spirit and strength in those years freed a man and brought an empire to its knees. When I feel tired, she concluded, when I fear for the future, when we squabble and fight within ourselves, I go back to your echoes inside me and find hope. The Sharansky family's personal festival of freedom allows us to understand why Pesach, the festival of finding God and of finding each other, takes place before the festival of unleavened bread, before the festival of freedom. We cannot celebrate our freedom if we cannot remember the moment when our ancestors felt God and came together as a people, before that freedom occurred. For only then is our own freedom truly appreciated. Thus, the trained Seder of 1919 stands today as a strange but striking symbol of what the first Seder in Egypt was all about, reminding us to see each other as fellow travelers through the history of our people. Sharansky himself reported in an interview about a neighbor who was nostalgic for the Jewish unity that was felt during the Soviet Jewry movement. And he reflects that, quote, a few years after I was released, when I was playing with my daughters in my yard, our neighbor, who made Aliyah from America some years ago, looked to me playing with my daughters, and with a nostalgic sigh, she said, Natan, it was such a great time when you were in prison. We all were going to demonstrations. We had our dates. We had our twin bar mitzvahs. We were all friends. Where did it all go? So, continued Sharansky, I almost apologized to her for being out of prison but I have no intention of going back. The Jewish people, 
he concluded. We'll have to find other reasons to love one another. Thousands of years after the Exodus, enemies of the Jews remain. Cultural assimilation remains. Jewish fragmentation persists. We do have to find a reason to love one another. And all that the Paschal offering in Egypt embodied so many years ago must today become a clarion call in our hearts. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.